Well, thank you, Dr. Bonds, for that very kind introduction. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, um, particularly since um, two of my, my closest friends are, are Villanova faculty. Um, Dr. Lucky and I go back to uh, our days at Yale when, when uh, we were classmates. Um, and uh, Dr. Kata literally is one of the first people that I talked to when I moved to Philadelphia. And, and, and uh, he's been stuck with me ever since. Now, you'll note that I'm wearing a, a bow tie. Um, Dr. Kata gave this bow tie to me for my 50th birthday which was four years ago. Um, and it took me, this long, took me that long to learn how to tie a bow tie. So I, I was getting dressed this, this, this afternoon, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to wear the bow tie, even if it takes me two hours to tie it. Um, actually, I've gotten pretty good at it. But um, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, this is a very much a work in progress. So I'm, I'm interested in. <coughs> hearing your thoughts. I know that, that some of you have already read Morrison's Jazz, and, and so by virtue of that, um, uh, I'm, I'm figuring that you've got some really good things to say, so I've got my, I've got my pad uh, to, take, to take notes. Um, this talk is called A Conversation to Have Once We're Home, Displacing Respectability's Visual Politics in Jazz. And it's, it's right now, I know this is going to, the structure of this is going to change, but right now it's in three parts. Um, those of you who are, who, are, who are just getting into academic writing, you have to sort of figure out your, your, uh, your ways to attack these things. And I sort of break my writing up in the, in the parts. So this is in three parts. So this is part one. <coughs> Excuse me. One of the most intriguing moments in Toni Morrison's jazz comes when the narrator describes the effect produced by the city. As the narrator portrays it, the city is a machine whose main aim is to pump desire. So that a woman in the country capable of, quote, churning a man's blood, unquote, just by leaning on a fence, would be all but invisible in the city unless she is in a state of motion on, quote, a big city street in heels, swinging her purse or sw sitting on a stoop with a cool beer in her hand, dangling her shoes from the toes of her foot, unquote at which point she becomes a visual confection. The man whose gaze would not be arrested otherwise is captured, thinking, quote, it was the woman he wanted and not some combination of curved stone and a swinging high-heeled shoe moving in and out of sunlight. He would know right away the deception, the trick of shapes and light and movement, but it wouldn't matter because the deception was part of it too. Anyway, he could feel his lungs going in and out, end quote. As Morrison employs that the sky is a machine, able to generate a circumstance where sensation and image are synonymous, imbued with the power to seduce. If William Carlos Williams could conceive of the modernist poem as a machine made of words, Morrison's city is a machine made of pure virtuality and fueled by desire. The city sky becomes a simulation where veracity is confirmed by air in the lungs. Morrison's characterization of the city gains purchase when considered alongside Ann Douglas's description of the 1920s as an aerial age where, quote, radio shows were on the air, planes toured the heavens, and buildings competed with the clouds. Everywhere people were netting the sky and finding in the air an androgynous free-for-all of spiritual energy, unquote. Enthusiasts seeking to capture the spirit of this moment used an intriguing adjective, air-mindedness. 
The implications of this moment are provocatively framed in Douglass's essay, Skyscrapers, Airplanes, and Airmindedness, A Necessary Angel. As the, drama, as the narrator dramatizes them in jazz, who declares, quote, but there is nothing to beat what the city can make of a night sky. It can empty itself of surface and more like the ocean itself, go deep, starless. As if embodying a consciousness, a city sky, quote, presses and retreats, presses and retreats, which captures in turn the narrative structure of jazz as a novel whose main, most salient feature is a narrator who oscillates between what Nancy Peterson refers to as the detachment and overarching knowledge typically associated with a reliable omniscient narrator and the limited knowledge, knowledge biases and involvement associated with an unreliable first person narrator. I won't have more to say about the novel's narrative mechanics, but for now, what is of greater interest is Morrison's decision to set the novel in the 1920s, most specifically 1926. <clears throat> Writing jazz gave Toni Morrison the opportunity to ponder the 1920s Manhattan cityscape as a space where what seems tangible is rendered illusory, as the intangibility of desire accrues irresistible weight. I'm reminded of Stuart Ewan's provocative observation that, quote, the implicit language of style offers a way of seeing and of not seeing the world we inhabit and our places within it, end quote. I find that Ewan's equation of style and the ineffectual nature of the visual field to be of great utility, for as my title is meant to suggest, I'm concerned with how jazz seeks to complicate respectability's relationship to visuality. But by invoking the notion of home, I hope to suggest that the underlying tension in jazz is generated by the fact that home as a space of solitude and inaccessibility is anything but having become an indicator of decency, even as outsiders consider themselves in the right for ruminating on what happens behind closed doors. Having made this assertion, I'm inclined to proceed with caution, not only because any attempt to engage Morrison's fiction by necessity involves looking before one leaps, but also because jazz's subject matter and the fact that it is set in the 1920s have the power to induce reverie that we associate with historical fiction and which historical fiction seeks to encourage. But any effort to parse jazz's rumination on the social traumas unfolding during its contemporary moment in the 90s needs first to distinguish myth from rhetoric, or as Philip Fisher would have it, rhetorics, plural. And in so doing, attend to Fisher's assertion that myth is, quote, a fixed, satisfying, and stable story that is used again and again to normalize our account of social life, end quote. As such, myth clarifies the social dramas unfolding before us by insinua insinuating the importance of symmetrical patterns moving across a temporal grid. By contrast, Fisher insists, rhetoric is, quote, always plural, end quote, so that rhetorics diverge from myth because they constitute a tactic within the open question of culture. It reveals interests and exclusions. To ponder the substance of rhetoric, Fisher writes, quote, is to look at the action potential of language and images, not just their power or contrivance to move an audience, but the location of words, formulas, images, and units of meaning within politics. Rhetoric, he concludes, is a place where language is engaged in cultural work, and such work can be done on, with, or in spite of one or another group within. Rhetorics are plural because they're a part of what is uncertain or potential within culture. So if you ever sort of look at the difference between Fox News and MSNBC, one of the things that you might notice is the manner in which one employs myth, the myth of, of the American dream as a kind of foundational um, text, and the other uses uh, rhetoric as a means by which to, to sort of deconstruct the way that myth sometimes ensorcels us and leads us to make decisions politically 
uh, that we might otherwise not make. So that the narrator in, in jazz trades in a visual rhetoric that seeks to create an ethical surface and thereby confirm that the urban landscape is at its most inviting when it privileges that which is most illusory. But such a conclusion rests on Stuart, Union's, Stuart Ewan's assertion that style is at its most provocative when it links human motive to the commodification of culture, most notably as it crystallizes into the image, insisting that we, quote, are constantly addressed by alluring images, end quote, which speak the universal language of the eye. And Ewan continues, quote, we are educated from infancy to look. We are not encouraged to see and interpret simultaneously. Our eyes imbibe images with little critical resistance, as if they offer an ordained glimpse of some distant yet accessible reality. It rarely occurs to us, as we pass through the perpetual cor corridors of visual representation, that every way of seeing is also a way of not seeing. So if you've ever uh, had an urge to, to go out and buy a, uh, an Audi after watching a commercial where the, the car is feminized, um, and made into um, something other than what it actually is, you, you get an idea of what Stuart Ewan is talking about. Um, now Morrison's earlier fiction suggests that this is, was not always the case. We look back to Beloved, the novel published before jazz, we see that that novel demonstrates the 19th century as a moment when iterations of black resistance were located in an aural, A-U-R-A-L, register, so that the forced labor on the chain gang in Alfred, Georgia, leads Paul D. and the other 45 men to organize an indirect response to their plight, quote, uh, quoting from Beloved. With a sledgehammer in his hands and high man's lead, the men got through. They sang it out, beat it up, garbling the words so they could not be understood, tricking the words so their syllables yielded up other meanings. They sang the women they knew, the children they had been, the animals they had tamed or seen others tame. They sang of bosses and masters and misses, of mules and dogs and the shamelessness of, life, shamelessness of life. They sang leveling of graveyards and sisters long gone, of pork in the woods, meal in the pan, fish on the line, cane, rain, and rocking chairs." End of quote. The instrumentality of the work song that issues from 46 men's effort to forestall the collapse of their humanity is of a piece with the ludic stylization of their historicity. In a situation in which the men are symbolically free but physically chained, the work song constitutes a performative space, reminiscent of what Morrison critic Marilyn Sanders Mobley calls a third space, in which the rhythmic progression impelling the song forward in time and space is counterpointed against the men's collective backward glance, a venture into the past that turns on creating sufficient space for each man to recover those aspects of experience that confirm the local iterations of their individual humanity. But in the 20th century, oral history, or oral history, has been displaced by an oral visual binary which is established with ineluctable force. For example, during the parade commemorating the lives lost in the race riots she escaped in East St. Louis, Alice Manfred watches, quote, a tide of cold black faces, end quote, moving down Fifth Avenue and concludes that, quote, what was meant came from the drums. Whereas the falling hammers and beloved spoke for the men in Alfred, Georgia, the mourners in a parade intended to memorialize the tragically dead reenact a counterpointed present and past where what they, what they, quote, meant to say but did not trust themselves to say the drums said for them. And what they had seen with their own eyes and through the eyes of others, the drums described to a T, end quote. However, Alice Dor Alice's niece Dorcas, whom she has taken in after the deaths of her parents and the racial violence, hears something quite different. 
Desiring the stimulation and release promised by life in a city that seeks both to fetishize and commodify pleasure, Dorcas hears the drums at the parade and understands that they, quote, were only the first part, the first word of a command. For the drums were not an all-embracing rope of, of fellowship, discipline, and transcendence. She remembered them as a beginning, a start of something she looked to complete. While her aunt ascertains the drums as instruments communicating a black resilience rooted in history, Dorcas hears them as a mechanism signaling the instrumentalization of physical desire. When it comes to the music of the time, Alice and Dorcas are at opposite ends of the spectrum, with Alice believing that the music she is hearing has undergone a transformation in which she hears a complicated anger and comes to hate its appetite. It's longing for the sash, the, slilt, the slit, a kind of careless hunger for a fight or red ruby stickpin for a tie, either would do. In her view, the music, quote, faked happiness, faked welcome, and does not, quote unquote, make her feel generous. Morrison's narrator elaborates on this sentiment when she states, they did not know for sure, but they suspected that the dances were beyond nasty because the music was getting worse and worse with each passing season. The Lord, with each passing season, the Lord waited to make himself known. Songs that used to start in the head and fill the heart had dropped on down, down to place below the sash and the buckled belts. The narrator's explanation for why Dorcas's response to the drums diverges so radically from Alice's is that back in East St. Louis, a wood chip from her burning house ignites and enters Dorcas's stretched dumb mouth and traveled down her throat, where it smoked and glowed there still, and lodged comfortably somewhere beneath her navel. For Dorcas, the drums confirm that life below the sash as all life below the sash as all the all the life there was, a message she categorizes as visual. Though she is seeing the same black, unblinking men as her aunt, the narrative, drum, the, the narrative the drums relate to Dorcas is not, as it is for Alice, explanatory or transcendent. Rather, its most salient feature lies in the fact that it is promissory. The drums assure Dorcas that the glow would never leave her, that it would be waiting for and with her whenever she wanted to be touched by it. So arriving at the house party with her friend Felice, Dorcas grow, grows increasingly ensorcelled by the intersection of erotic desire and romantic love, entering a space in which promiscuity and respectability acquire a companionable weight. Promiscuity's adjectival cousin, promiscuous, a term applied to individuals, most often women, engaged in a series of transient sexual couplings, has its etymological roots in the 17th century from the Latin word promiscuous, derived from an earlier word miscere to mix, consisting of elements mixed together. The connotations of promiscuity are in evidence when Dorcas, at 16, accompanies her friend Felice to a house party. With Alice away on business, the most difficult aspect of getting to the party was, quote, in finding something foxy enough to wear, unquote. Knowing that the party is an opportunity to see and be seen, Dorcas's expectations of what kind of time she will have are shaped by her sense that, quote, a badly dressed body is nobody at all, end quote. Without silk stockings and with shoes that are those of someone much younger or very old, Dorcas feels ill-equipped to impress, but the house party indicates how orality and visuality have fallen into a nearly seamless relation with the music compensating for Dorcas's sense of lack. The music intensifies the social gaze, but it's, it does so by reversing respectability's visual imperative. The gaze no longer works in service to a morality steeped in traditional values, and traditional in quotes, but rather to an imperative in which corporeality and carnality are sutured 
to promiscuity's root word, promise, which denotes the act of giving good, giving good grounds for expecting. When Dorcas notices the brothers who've been dancing in the living room commanding the attention of a crowd, a crowd in the dining room, she feels what the narrator describes as the stomach jump that is a sign of real interest and possible love. Noting the brothers' wonderful faces, Dorcas's admiring gaze is met by the brothers whose eyes seem wide and welcoming to her, but this visual transaction occurs within the illusory, the illusory and volatile space created by the music. And so in the silence right before the record on the turntable begins to play, the romantic narrative set in motion by eyes meeting across a crowded room breaks down in a passage that I like to quote at length. The brothers turn up the rottage of their smiles. The right record is on the turntable now. She can hear its preparatory hiss as the needle slides toward its first groove. The brothers smile brilliantly. One leans a fraction of an inch toward the other and never losing eye contact with Dorcas whispers something. The other looks Dorcas up and down as she moves toward them. Then, just as the music slow and smoky loads up the air, his smile bright as ever, he wrinkles his nose and turns away." End quote. Having been the, the object of a gaze in which she has been acknowledged, appraised, and dismissed, Dorcas finds her veins blocked by the ice flows created by rejection, concluding that the body she inhabits is unworthy. Despite the fact that Dorcas is graceful and provocative when she dances, outside of the encomia the music creates, the visual promise of the glowing ember at her navel proves to be an empty one. But equally provocative is the notion that the narrator herself is a figuration of promiscuity, not in the erotic sense, but in terms of how she approaches the act of narration itself. Midway through Toni Morrison's jazz, the narrator makes a striking observation. In a declaration that highlights the trepidation that should accompany the effort to determine the rationale for any individual's conduct, she notes, quote, quote, risky, I'd say, trying to figure out anybody's state of mind, end quote. The commonsensical rightness of this observation notwithstanding, what is of greater concern is the manner in which it would seem to sum up with startling succinctness the inherent dilemma of first-person narration in a novel. But the narrator distinguishes herself by declaring that the act of trying to determine how someone else thinks is, quote, worth the trouble if you're like me, curious, inventive, and well-informed. The fifth chapter's opening sentence posits the narrator's belief that her narrative authority is sufficient for the task of narrating how the lives of three individuals can become hopelessly entangled by the foibles of the human heart. But as Jazz makes clear, the entanglement that emerges between Joe, Violet, and Dorcas does not occur in a social vacuum. Rather, the events leading up to Dorcas's murder are suggestive of the ways that small violations can intensify into larger transgressions where lives are placed in peril. The narrator's careful deline delineation of the scene described above suggests that she arbitrates on the boundary of what constitutes respectable behavior and what does not. Tracing the etymology of the word respectability to its original source, we find that its root word, respect, issues from the classical Latin word respectus, which refers to the act of looking around or looking back, to give something one's regard or consideration, which means that respectability is a product of the gaze. Thus, the phrase, in respect to, refers to the act of directing one's gaze towards someone or something. Hence, the concept of respectability turns on the act of aiming a socially constituted gaze at the cohabitants in a social location 
thus indicating that while this person deserves only a passing glance, another person invites a more intensely focused gaze, able to penetrate an individual's carefully managed surface traits to locate and discern their inner essence. To be respectful, then, is not a matter of appearing to be. Rather, it means that one is actually what one appears to be. How one appears is synonymous with indicative of who one is. However, if respect is rooted in the visual economy, the house party and the emphasis Dorcas places on how she is dressed signals that the look aimed at her, while characterized as an appraisal, is equally significant because it involves considerable risk. So that it is not enough to discuss, discuss Dorcas as the object of the male gaze, we must also be mindful that a romantic encounter is contingent on Dorcas's ability to acknowledge that she has arrested the male gaze but in addition to returning that gaze in such a way that it communicates that she is willing to acquiesce to the demands of the male gaze being directed at her. The problem, sorry, the problem is that in the absence of the quote-unquote right record, silence nullifies a moment before the, the scenario can be acted upon. Respect as the product of looking when we consider that the word spec, which is at the center of the word respect, and which in Latin means to look, constitutes the foundational root of both spectacle and speculation, are essential elements of the house party scene. Though Dorcas's inequity of both status and power is never in doubt, the fact that the brothers look at Dorcas and they confer and they and then confer insinuates that they are weighing the risk of being with a girl like Dorcas. And given that only one of the brothers sends the message that Dorcas is not an acceptable partner, the spectacle apart from their dancing in the living room for an audience, is a transaction they conduct to determine Dorcas's relative worth. But if risk is an, is an essential aspect of the characters' lives, it is equally important to the narrator, who deems the act of narrating the full contours of Joe and Re Violent's respective stories as a risky venture in which narration itself proceeds from a speculative posture. The reader then is placed into a speculative posture along with the narrator because our understanding of the story depends on whether the narration is substantial enough for us to ascertain that we are reading what we are reading occurs within what Ian Balcom refers to as a grammar of trust. And this has been the case all along. From the moment the narrator turned her gaze on Violet and claimed to know both her and Joe, the fact that the entire story is related on the first page of the novel suggests the ways that we have been pulled into the space of narrative speculation simply because the narrator used the word no, K-N-O-W. As readers of jazz quickly realize, the novel is full of characters who engage in acts of misconduct. Indeed, it is by no means a reach to insist that marital conduct, social conduct, criminal conduct, and finally, narrative conduct are central to the novel. Further, by addressing the question of conduct, the novel's po title points to the ways that Morrison seeks to engage the politics of of respectability as they're being played out on the streets of Harlem in 1926. And by turns, Morrison exerts critical pressure on this moment's two grand narratives, the Jazz Age and the Harlem Renaissance. For while both narratives were produced when Northern blacks began to accumulate the cultural capital necessary with their contributions to the cultural vocabulary of the U.S. To be, to be regarded as legitimate, if not exotic, what is occluded and what jazz seeks to restore is our ability to discern the human cost in narratives involving capital accumulation of any sort, whether it be cultural, social, or political in nature. Further, by foregrounding the issue of conduct, Morrison reveals the psychosocial underpinnings of the controversial controversy generated by the arrival of jazz on the American scene.
In Risk and Blame, the renowned anthropologist Mary Douglas seeks to examine systems of blaming as a way to understand how individuals create systems of accountability. In short, she notes, quote, the stronger the solidarity of a community, the more readily will dis natural disasters be coded as signs of reprehensible behavior, unquote. So one of the things that you could say is that people talking about Hurricane Katrina as something that the city of New Orleans had visited upon them because it was uh, a morally reprehensible space is an example of what Douglas is talking about. Every death and most illnesses will give scope for def defining blameworthiness. Um, when we read Douglas's work in this volume and its predecessor, Purity and Danger, we come to understand that the arrival of jazz music was accompanied by anxieties about the pernicious impact of jazz in the early days of ragtime, and of ragtime, where the adherence to musical orthodoxy characterized jazz and ragtime as, quote, an infection and as a virulent poison and malarious epidemic. Jazz is then attentable, attentive to how inhabitants of Harlem respond to the hierarchical shifts occurring between the visual and our registers as they reimagine spatial relations and from there reconceptualize the social codes underlying systems of accountability. Joe Trace's comments regarding the changes he undergoes after arriving in New York need to be understood then on both an ontological and a practical level. Hence, when Joe says, quote, when the rents got raised and raised again and the stores doubled the price of uptown beef and let the white folks' meat stay the same, I got me a little sideline selling Cleopatra products in the neighborhood. The exigency of Joe's economic situation intimates that both the Jazz Age and the Harlem Renaissance function within systems of myth. They're both narratives whose historicity is a product of what are finally arbitrary representations of the 1920s in which the illusion of prosperity is, is deployed for radically different reasons. In the case of the former, to equate a volatile marketplace with progress, and in the latter, to equate cultural production with a narrative of racial triumphalism. But if William B. Spott and Peter Rutkoff point out, by 1925, when Alain Locke's The New Negro appeared, quote, Harlem had already begun to resemble Hell's Kitchen and San Juan Hill, inundated by what impoverished West Side blacks, many of whom had migrated to New York from Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia. Indeed, as Southern migrants disembarked at the 125th Street subway station, finding a sanctuary from the racial violence and disenfranchisement they had known in the South, they were finally part of an influx of poor newcomers. As early as 1914, Harlem's population had grown so rapidly, the quality of life in the area deteriorated. We must remember that Harlem's transformation from first rural, then suburban enclave was precipitated by real estate speculation in which mansions owned by wealthy whites were sold to absentee landlords who chopped them into apartments too small and too badly maintained to be safely habitable. habitable. Moreover, Harlem, Harlem residents paid 25% more than other New Yorkers for comparable apartments. The 1920s constitutes a moment that confirms sociologist Deborah Lupton's sense that societies in a state of cultural precariousness employ two strategies when trying to assimilate difference. One strategy is anthropophagic, involving annihilating strangers by devouring them and then metabolically transforming them into tissue indistinguishable from one's own. The other strategy is anthropoemic, involving vomiting the strangers, banishing them from the limits of the orderly world, and barring them from all communication with those inside. 
Jazz occurs at the, at the intersection of these cultural imperatives. With the Jazz Age turning on the consumption of black culture on an unprecedented scale, and the Renaissance generated by the tensions produced by the arrival of blacks forcibly expelled from the South, we enter into a new circumstance in which presence is increasingly reliant on both simulation and stimulation. An example of this comes when Violet is accused of stealing a baby out of, the, out of a carriage, having been asked by a teenager to watch her baby brother as she runs back into her house for a record to play for a friend called the Trombone Blues. Though the narrator relates this occurrence as, as proof of Violet's descent into mental instability, it is also a moment marked by the growing influence popular culture assumes in everyday life where the responsibility to Ken is compromised by the stimulation that accompanies hearing recorded music. The narrator describes how neighbors excoriate the girl for her lapse of judgment, illustrating the generational schism growing up between adults who value personal connections developed over time, rather than the race record's mass-produced traumatization of romance and heartbreak, pleasure, and pain. But this duality intimates more than the calamitous penalties that result when oppositional principles collide, what, what lies beneath the depiction of consumer desire trumping common sense is intimated by understanding how the airplane captured the public imagination so thoroughly. Consider August Wilson's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, where the play opens with the exchange between Sturdivant, the record producer, record producer and Irvin, Ma Rainey's manager, describing the desirability of the trumpet, trumpeter Levy's sound. Sturdivant states, quote, I want to hear more of that sound. Times are changing. This is a tricky business now. We've got to jazz it up, put in something different. You know, something wild with lots of rhythm, unquote. Thus, even as conservative social reformers like Anne Shaw Faulkner, who were attentive to jazz as a likely source of moral decay, by 1920, the term jazz was often used as a verb denoting the quickening of societal mechanisms. Hence, board socialites often expressed the need to jazz things up, unquote, quote, unquote, especially those affiliated with the pursuit of pleasure. Another way to think about this is to suggest that the Jazz Age, far from being a radical departure from the protocols of race relations established in the post-Reconstruction South, was distinguished by its foregrounding of race as a signifier of the aberrant and the anomalous. As Mary Douglas suggests, the very public nature of culture creates rigid ca categories that often give way to aberrant cultural forms. Any given system of, of classification must give rise to an anomaly, she argues, and any given culture must confront events which seem to defy its assumptions. The visual politics of respectability are realized in Morrison's narrator, who articulates, on one hand, the seductive power of urban modernity, and on the other, the pressures urban living can exert on the well-being, the mental well-being of Harlemites. But this is accomplished through the narrator's haphazard approach to narration, where as often as not, she fills in the narrative gaps in the form of visual details, sounds characteristic of urbanity, and an insider's knowledge that allows her narration to, resist, to reside beyond challenge. As she intimates, the city itself is a source of her seemingly unimpeachable narrative authority. Quote, a city like this one makes me dream tall and feel in on things. Hep, it's the bright steel rocking above the shade below that does it, when I look over strips of green grass lining the river at church steeples and the cream and cop copper halls of apartment buildings, I'm strong. This description of the feeling living in Manhattan that that feeling living in Manhattan generates could just as easily have been uttered by Fitzgerald's Nick Carraway at the start of The Great Gatsby. And for good reason, since the narrator's sense of belonging is intricately linked to a gaze that in turn links the altitude made possible by buildings rising up from the street 
the streets of Manhattan create a feeling of inclusion. But the passage is also suggestive of the ways that this feeling is illusory. The skyscraper, the church steeple, and the apartment building are sources of a kind of vicarious strength that the narrator can access, but only in transient forms. Hence, she notes, quote, I haven't got any muscles, so I can't really be expected to defend myself. But I do know how to take precaution. Mostly it's making sure no one knows all there is to know about me. Second, I watch everything and everyone and try to figure out their plans, their reasoning, long before they do. The narrator's strength, in quotes, is not synonymous with physicality, but rather it issues from a gaze powered by our readerly desire to know the details of a moral transgression in a definitive way. So if you think about reality television, reality television is a sort of, of post-cursor of what the narrator is describing in jazz. That reality television ensorcels us by our desire to, to, to know this sort of transgressive thing. So if you ever watch, uh, I had my class watching Jerry Springer last week. And I was, I was saying to them that, that on some level Jerry Springer is, is an interesting phenomenon because it gives us um, people who would otherwise be invisible and it gives them an opportunity to exercise voice in this very sort of volatile arena, but ultimately it actually strips them of their respectability in the process. Um, we, we, so we revel in their sort of making fools of themselves on television. Um, Morrison's narrator is reminiscent of what Walter Benjamin would call the flaneur, a figure who delights in immersing herself in the crowd the narrator seems to approach the task of narration with a relish that can be understood in relation to the Flaner's role as strolling spectator, whose gaze is directed into the apartment and office buildings rising above street level, someone who collects mental notes taken on leisurely city walks, who takes pleasure in abandoning herself to the artificial world of high capitalist civilization. The narrator's declaration that trying to determine the other's state of mind is risky must be juxtaposed against the fact that she tells the story of Golden Gray twice, in an, in an omniscient version that recounts Gray's journey from Baltimore, his discovery of Wilde on the side of the road and his arrival at Henry Lestery's ca cabin, and a version that features the narrator, narrator's ambivalence regarding how she gleans Gray's motivations for seeking out the father he's never known. In so doing, the narrator reveals her own motives. Quote, now I have to think this through carefully, even though I may be doomed to another misunderstanding, I have to do it and not break down. Not hating him is not enough. Liking, loving him is not useful. I have to alter things. Herein lies the inherent danger of the kinds of narrative annexations typical of the flaneur. When a narrator willingly privileges excess over restraint, narrative becomes overwhelmingly speculative. But it's here I wish to refer, return to Stuart, Union's, Stuart Ewan's observations regarding the universal language of the eye. For his deepest concern is not simply the aural visual binary, but the manner in which acts of speculation starting in the 19th century saw the preeminence of hard goods give way to that of abstract value and materiality and the ephemeral. It is here that we begin to understand how Morrison's jazz is a commentary on the 1990s when it was published, especially in light of the stock market crash of 1987, which Ewan characterizes as a byproduct of the economy of abstraction. This economy of ab abstraction informs Morrison's resistance to the resignation that ends Fitzgerald's Gatsby and the optimism we so often attribute to the Harlem Renaissance. That Dorcas is attracted to that person who satisfies her hunger for change, 
for something to do speaks to how simulation and stimulation are intricately linked. After she leaves Joe to become involved with Acton, Dorcas justifies the move by stating, quote, he didn't even care what I looked like. I could be anything, do anything, and it pleased him. Something about that made me mad. But it's here that Morrison demonstrates that the transition African Americans are making as they abandon their rural origins for urban space is one that demands the reorganization of social protocols, generating new ways to appraise the body to understand how it relates to the present. Consider the way Acton relates to Dorcas. Quote, Acton, now, he tells me when he doesn't like the way I fix my hair. Then I do it how he likes. I never wear glasses when he is with me, and I change my laugh for him to one he likes better. I think he does. I know he didn't like it before, and I play with my food now. Joe like for me to eat it all up and want more. Acton gives me a quiet look when I ask for seconds. He worries about me that way. Joe never did. Joe didn't care what kind of woman I was. If respectability is a manifestation of visual politics, as Dorcas's comments suggest, her declaration that, quote, I have a look now, unquote, is indicative of her fall into the tight spaces that occasion forms of cultural weightlessness. Characters who experience cultural weightlessness, weightlessness in Morrison fiction are legion, with Pecola, Plum, Guitar, Sun Green providing examples, and also, I guess, Frank Money in her latest novel, Home, so that it might be more appropriate to say that in the aftermath of Setha's violence, and Baby Sugg's sense that the feast on the day before school teachers' arrival mark her as complicit in the, function of the, in the malfunction of the community's mechanism that might have prevented Setha from murdering her child, this so cultural weightlessness leads, leads Baby Suggs to fall into a widening state of depression. I would submit that her fixation on color in Beloved is her attempt to find her way back to a world in which futurity is manifest, in which she can access the emotional, psychological, and mental energy she exercised in the clearing, a space in which the antiphonal practices that characterize life in the modern black church provide the rituals of healing, reflection, and corporealization necessary to rebuild subject subjectivities compromised by slavery. And moving toward a conclusion then about the narrative mechanics and as well the narrative politics of jazz, I would like to juxtapose the notion of cultural weightlessness against the notion of the, against the liberatory space represented by self-acceptance. When Felice visits the Trace in their apartment and she and Violet have a conversation in which Violet says, I killed her, then I killed the me that killed her, in discussing the way that she finds her way back to herself, when Felice asks what's left, Violet says, me. Jazz is written at a time in the 1990s when the real was displaced by the speculative. If one thinks here of junk bonds and insider trading, what we see is that jazz was written at a moment when, when uh, what constituted the real had become so slippery that, in fact, it led to a situation in which people made profit off of something that didn't exist. Um, Morrison is very critical of this, and I submit that um, the work that she does in the novel A Mercy is in, is in very much a similar vein. So that one of the things that, that we're left with in um, the novel, the novel jazz, is where does the blame lie for how the characters behave? We could, on some level, say that the characters are responsible for their actions. But what I think Morrison wants us to think about, given the end of the novel, is that we are implicit and complicit 
um, participants in what happens in the novel throughout. In fact, when the novel says, look where your hands are, one of the things that, that Morrison wants us to think about is the manner in which the novel, as a sort of cultural technology, is in many ways built on the idea that it gives us a window into things that are not our business. So to end here, jazz is written at a time when uh, we are moving quickly away from the corporeal, but ultimately Violet and I think Joe Trace and finally the character of Felice suggest to us that Baby Suggs had it right in the clearing that ultimately everything that matters is to be found in the flesh. Thank you. So now, let me get my little folder, my little legal pad out. We can talk. And if there are things that, that went over your head, I'm happy to, I'm happy to, 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 to break them down and unpack them. One of the things about doing these 40-minute talks is that you, you are cramming stuff in. Yes? Um, could you explain a little more about the cultural Um, I think Toni Morrison gives us lots of instances where her characters, she gives us characters who become unmoored from the things that um, verify our, our sense of being and our reality and our presence. And when that happens, they fall into a state of what I call cultural weightlessness. And so if you think about um, a character like Pecola in The Bluest Eye, Pecola falls into that, cultural, that state of cultural weightlessness because the, the, the idea of having blue eyes trumps any sense of self that she might have in the actual world. She has to become, she has to enter insanity to be whole. And you can only get there by falling into the state of cultural weightlessness where your body becomes immaterial to how you understand who you are. Other questions or comments? Yes, sir. Thank you so much, Pam, for coming and giving us. How are you, Shiji? It's good to see you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was. I want to latch on to the yeah, conclusion about how we are implicated, you know, in terms of what befalls uh, the characters in, in, in jazz. And I was wondering if you were thinking about that in relation to the narrative point of view or the nature or character of the narrator as this kind of uh, figure <coughs> that seems to convey the sense of our own sense of smugness, our own sense of self-righteousness and the like. Is that how you are thinking about your larger yeah, context? Yeah, I, 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 my class was reading uh, Toni Morrison's Love last week. And, and what we were trying to wrap our mind around um, is something that, um, when we were in graduate school, this was something that was sort of touted as, as, as really important, which is the idea of voice. And I think what Morrison gives us with this narrator is this narrator that has this unimpeded voice, which is something that we thought we were striving for in the 19th century. How can we get to a place where our voices are unimpeded and we can speak in the public sphere in ways that people will pay attention to us? Well, the novel, is a cultural technology that, that plays that out on some level. And the problem is that um, 
we, when we were thinking about voice, we were thinking about voice in relationship to canon formation. So we were saying that, you know, I mean, if you look, if you just do a quick survey over literary criticism in African-American literary studies in the 80s and early 90s, the word voice appears again and again and again and again and again. And in thinking about that, I think what um, we lost sight of by the time we get to, to, to the last decade and, and, and this decade is the manner in which voice has to involve instances where you choose not to speak. And what the narrator in jazz sort of acts out is this total license to be able to tell us whatever we want to hear, but sometimes we need one for the silence to sort of represent the line that we should not cross um, in knowing about somebody. But, but in this moment where there's so much information, one of the things that happens is that, is that I mean, and again, the Jerry Springer example is, I think, sort of indicative here. Jerry Springer is willing, only too willing to give people a voice to talk about their, um, the ways that they've been um, mistreated or, 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 or wronged. But ultimately, that becomes a spectacle whereby the exercise of voice is so tied to, to um, the sort of speculation of television that ultimately voice becomes meaningless. And I think what Toni Morrison in 1992 or 93 is trying to, to, to really think through is how, um, how did voice become so attached to um, the idea of, of pleasure such that you take pleasure in narrating somebody's sort of in, in intellectual or mental or cultural or moral demise. And on some level, we have to really sort of think about, was the novel designed as a piece of cultural technology to do that? Um, so I've been reading Ian Baucom's um, book, uh, Specters of the Atlantic, and it's a, it's a book that I highly recommend to you graduate students in the audience. Um, in part because Baucom really works through uh, the manner in which the rise of credit, the rise of uh, the insurance industry and the novel are all sort of implicated in this sort of evacuation, emptying out of the real. And so I think setting jazz in the 1920s as we're moving toward the stock market crash is in many ways to rethink or cover that same ground that Balcom is trying to cover where speculation comes to look like prosperity but in fact it's pushing us over the edge we should be, um, that should resonate for us in light of the housing uh, collapse in, the, in 2008, where the housing bubble grew and it grew and it grew, but ultimately people were speculating on the blameworthiness of people who could not pay their mortgages. People became rich off of people's lack of actual uncredit worthiness and they bet on how long it would take for their mortgages to, to, to collapse, to be, to be um, uh, called in by the banks. But it created this run on the banks that actually collapsed, nearly collapsed the economy. I think Morrison is really mindful of those moments where, um, as Stuart Hall would put it, be careful when your identity gives you what you want. You are in the most danger when your identity gives you back an image of yourself that, that, that is ultimately a false image, but which 
is happens in a moment when the real is so evacuated that you come to think that it's that it's real, right? So so you could have millions of dollars um, ostensibly at your disposal, but if they're not real, when the economy collapses, you have no way to prop up the economy. The economy collapses because it was it was propped up by air. So that whole notion of air mindedness, air mindedness in my talk. I'm sort of tracing back to the 1920s at a time when we got used to the idea of prosperity being linked to something that doesn't have any kind of tangibility or materiality. Yes? So your, your comments made me think, this is just an aside, it's not really the question I had, but <clears throat> it makes me think about um, Sula and mm -hmm. about that kind of unbridled freedom mm -hmm. that it, it also sort of right. asks us to consider what, right. what happens in that right. state. Um, I felt like when I was listening to your talk at one point, I felt like a fraud for the way I teach the Harlem Renaissance. I, it made me think I should, I should not teach a course called the Harlem Renaissance, right? Like that, that it's sort of at the core of what you seem to have been getting at and what it seems that Morrison is getting at as well is about, which, which I think in some ways J. Martin Favors' book, Authentic Blackness, right. gets at, right. Right? right? Is that, you know, that we've been looking at all these kind of upper middle class folks and that we need to look at the folk, we need to look right. at the kind of lower classes. Right. Um, which, of course, when that book was published, it made me, you know, expand and mm -hmm. broaden who I was teaching, right. what I was looking sure. at. But now your talk is making me almost feel like I should find a new term, mm. um, like like we need a new term, <clears throat> and that and that it, it, like I feel like I, I feel like I've been chastised. I know you didn't intend to. Do that, but <laughs> I feel like I've been chastised in some way that um, that as much as I have tried not to romanticize mm. um, that period, and I feel like I've done a pretty good job of trying. Mm -hmm. To get my students not to romanticize it, that, like like it's almost like you're calling us to go a step further. Um, yeah, it, it, I, I you know I thought about that as as I was um, writing this talk uh, last summer because I because I thought you know um, this this is um, this is going to be extremely problematic for people that that use the Harlem Renaissance to periodize. African American literature, and and probably because I've I've never been a, a huge fan of the Renaissance, in part because I think we substitute periodization for stylization. And reading George Hutch Hutchinson's book, The Harlem Renaissance in Black and White, where he talks about the fact that we really have discounted in narratives of the Harlem Renaissance the manner in which people are moving across racial borders and interacting with one another and collaborating with one another. Because on some level, in the 70s and 80s, when we were trying to establish a beachhead in the academy with African American literary studies, we were really sort of forced to think of the Harlem Renaissance in these sort of circumscribed ways as this racial narrative, right? As this racially triumphant mm -hmm. narrative, right? And, and I think what Morrison is saying is that um, which is why I talk about 
I use Philip Fisher's notion of rhetorics, the Harlem Renaissance is a rhetorical move. It's not a historical move. That, that there are rhetorics available to us when we talk about the Harlem Renaissance that we need to recognize as, as rhetorics that are available to us, but ultimately they're not totalizing narratives. So, I mean, it's, it's I mean, it, it, I don't know, it, at least the way I was interpreting it, I mean, it, it almost felt like, you know, it, I mean, it almost felt like, stop it, right? Like, <laughs> stop, stop, stop all of this celebration, um, or even any of this kind of celebration, because at, at one point, as you were talking, I thought, well, so was there ever a triumph? Right? Is there ever any real estate? Well, I mean, when you start talking about the real estate, right? Right. right. That it, it all—it's always already a mess. Right. By the time you get there, right? Right. It's right. broken up into right. these. You know, I mean, it makes me think of like you know Rudolph Fisher's city refuge, right? It's right. never really a refuge. Right. Right. But, but in many ways, it is. Right. It keeps right. you from getting lynched. Right. right. I mean, it offers a space. Where yeah. You absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the thing is, we just, have to, we just have to understand that the Harlem that, that Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn create and take the A train or, or Rudolph Fisher creates and Miss Cynthia, mm -hmm. or, you know, when we, think about, when we think about those Harlems, they're rhetorical representations of Harlem, right? But, but you know, on some level, um, they're not meant to stand for the displacement of, of, of sort of the white supremacist notion that, that black people are invisible, right? And, and the, so the reason why I pair it with the jazz age is because I think on some level both of them are implicated as these moments that, that seek to romanticize what ultimately is just consumption, right? And, and, and so if there's, if, there's, if there's somebody that's implicated in that, I think it's the black middle class so it's actually the black intelligentsia that attempted to portray the Harlem Renaissance and the New Negro as this, as this sort of triumphant moment. Um, but um, um, what is her name? Uh, Martha Nadell's book on um, representation of the New Negro, she does this really interesting, she does a really good chapter on uh, Alain Locke's addition uh, of the survey graphic and the, and the art work they include in the in the the, the what will become the new Negro mm -hmm. so the survey graphic is what sort of predates the new Negro what she says is that there are these there are these these sort of drawings the survey graphic is 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 sort of distinguished by the fact that that they often use drawings of types to convey how people occupied certain sort of locations on in the in the world Right, so 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 there's a there's a picture in the survey graphic of a Negro laborer, but you don't see his face. You see him from behind. He's this muscular black man, and he's holding what looks to be a, a hammer. Right, but there are there's these other types. Well, if you think about it, what what the Renaissance. This is how the Renaissance works for me. This is this is the only way that it really works for me. If you think about it as a response to minstrelsy in the 19th century where they're trying to, to, to implement new models um, and new ways to represent vernacular blackness, then it works, right? And, and, and it, it, you know, that beginning of Miss, of Miss Cynthia where she's like, you're calling me ma'am? Mm -hmm. You know, for the first time in her, I mean, part of what 
Fisher is recognizing is that when you leave the South and come to the North, you are treated differently. But we need to remember, segregation as the South came to practice it was originally modeled in the North. And by virtue of that, um, Harlem is the sort of recipient of the kind of municipal neglect that will lead to the Harlem riots in 1942. You know, I think that's that's really helpful because it makes me think about you know the fact that this novel this novel is called Jazz, and it really does. I mean, I, I, in a longer version of this, I, I actually will go into into um, how I think jazz is being sort of performed and dramatized in the in the book. But one of the things that's that's clear as I've as I've taught this class on jazz at at Penn because the other component of the class is that we, we do a lot of work with the Philadelphia jazz community. And one of the things we do is we put on a, we put on a, the class puts on a free concert in West Philadelphia. And interacting with the musicians, one of the things that's really clear is that musicians dislike in the extreme the idea that jazz is this kind of static thing that is best sort of accessed through records um, so one of the things that, that I think Morrison is trying to think about, and I haven't really worked this all the way through, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm having the beginnings of it. One of the things that's, that's clear is that the narrator in jazz goes from thinking of herself as a jazz musician in the sort of popular sense, the Paul Whiteman sense, to th thinking about herself as a jazz musician in, I think, what is the more apt and more in the sense that's more in line with how musicians think, which is that 
A, the music is ephemeral. Um, as soon as you play it, it's, it's done, right? Um, and your, the test for a jazz musician is not what you played last week. The test is can you play what you, la what you played last week in a completely different way um, that is equally legitimate, right? We're not really built as consumers of culture to understand that notion of cultural production. Right, right. We're not, we're not, we're, you know, with, with the advent of pop music, which is coming into vogue when jazz is happening, with the advent of pop music and records, one of the things that happens is that, um, as Walter Benjamin would put it, you know, in the, the age of mechanical reproduction, one of the things that happens is that you come to, to take the reproduction as this thing that's, that's real, right? So, so you go to hear somebody live and you ask yourself, how come they don't sound like the record? When records were never meant to, 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 to substitute for um, live music, but with the advent of radio, one of the things that happens is that records come to be a, a cheaper way of, of disseminating culture because you can't have Duke Ellington every week in the studio. Can't, can't happen. Um, but you can play his records, and as that happens, People think, I mean, what, what interests me about how jazz works this out, people think that they know what Duke Ellington sounds like when in fact they don't. They know how Duke Ellington sounded on the day they recorded the record and distributed it, but that's not how Duke Ellington sounds in the present moment. And Morrison's really interested in ways that when you collapse that very significant gap between what really is and what is the sort of simulation of what really is. When you collapse that barrier, ultimately what happens is that people come, people have a difficult time finding their way to, 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 to any sort of moral um, solidity because the only way that they have to figure that out is culture. And culture is portraying, once we get talking cinema, that's how people come to understand their, their surroundings, is, is through the movies, right? And, and so if you think about, about um, Pakola's mother, Polly Breedlove, her understanding of relationships moves from being, you know, the sort of flesh and bone corporeal relationships with her, th that gets displaced by, oh, this is how relationships are supposed to go, right? And as that happens, um, we get into a we get onto a very slippery slope that we have not been able to get off of. So, so we were talking about hip hop videos early. Hip hop early, hip hop videos have are kind of the new mode of 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 how people come to understand how to behave, right? But in fact, it's a simulation, and it's not meant to to do that. But people take it as this real thing. But that's understood in, in virtually every form of technology since we started. Technology 
voicing these things, giving agency, creating the creation of culture. I like your term, cultural technology. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's Norm Berlinster. Cultural technology, all right? I mean, um, in all these different forms, all right? It goes back to Morrison in terms of advancing the interrogator. Mm -hmm. Hand up brown. sure that Morrison is, I mean, I, I'd have to be able, the only way I could answer that question is if I thought that jazz is a historical novel, and I don't think it's a historical novel. Um, I think it's very much a novel that's a commentary about the 1990s when it's written. So, so by way of answering your, the way that I would answer your question is to say that in the 1990s, the legacy that we have from the 1920s is alive and well because we still have an economy that's grounded in speculation um, as, a, as a method to produce wealth. And we're coming off of the 80s, when the 80s sees the largest number of people become millionaires um, who are not part of the owner class. They, they come out of the managerial class. So the 1920s is really a good time to write a novel and, and insert black people into that discussion because it's, 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 a, it's a moment where, I mean, the skyscraper is, is kind of a symbol in this book. The skyscraper is the product of corporate capitalism, which was the sort of uh, replacement for family-owned businesses, for the, for the kind of small mercantile class. When we, went to, when we developed the managerial class, one of the things that happened was, um, you, and I think Marx probably peaked this, which is why he's so hard on the middle class, um, one of the things that happens is that you get these folks that are creating wealth, but in fact, what, what they actually have created is just a, 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 a set of techniques that allows them to, 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 to create value from stuff that's not real, right? And so the, the thing is, that's why consumption becomes so important. And so in the 1990s, you think about you think about the manner in which um, poor people spend as much money as they spend on cable television. That sort of that's that's the legacy, right? That that um, somebody I remember listening to uh, I think it maybe might have been uh, um, DAS and they were they were they were sort of doing the question of the day, and they were they were asking the question, but like who's who are some of the richest people? in the United States. And somebody called in and, and, and mentioned a, 
a soap opera character. Like Erica Kane on One Life to Live is one of the richest people in America. And, and, and that sort of inability to distinguish the, the, the false, the fictional from the, from the real is kind of the legacy that Morrison is trying to, to work through. What happens when culture works for us in that way that you don't have to do the work in the actual yes. Are they talking about Susan Lucci or are they talking about Eric King? Eric King. So that's, that's, that is, <laughs> so if you're just reading Morrison, I can, I can doctor what they say you do, do the fiction pieces. You need to read Eric. Now we can, the best pieces are in the dark. And in playing in the dark, she's going right to this, to this very point about, um, I, I hesitate to say it real, but the fictional versus the historical. So she's talking about the formation of the American canon. When you think about the American canon, I think it's probably easy taking at least as far as the canon in Europe. Uh, one of the notions is that this is, uh, for Americans, this is, at best in its broadest sense, is a, a Euro-American product. It's most limited since the authorship is American. So there's nothing else in it. There are no other parts that inform. What she's saying is that, is that, well, that's a fiction of the fiction. Because, in effect, if one looks at the American canon, then the first thing that one has to recognize that you are learning to read again is the notion that this is a canon that is riddled, infused, informed by. Uh, instigated by what she calls a deep, a body his presence. And she goes from, where she start? She starts with, starts with Hawthorne. She starts with Hawthorne and takes it all the way to him. And that becomes the fundamental picture. You have to talk. I mean, she said, she's saying you, you have to look for these things. And so, Another project is to look for that before the American moment and to look for you know, the structures of European and some of the kinds of literature that you seem to be devoid of Africans. And then you might do it to look at your literature that seems to be simply rendered by the Mandalays or by, as another colleague does, uh, looks, looks at it from the standpoint of uh, Sexual orientation. So there's, there are all these things, all these ways. But she, this is what Morrison is getting at in terms of saying that you need to learn how to read these things. You need to learn how to, how to examine context and to take the variables and go into cultural formation. In some ways, it's still, I, I, you know, in dealing with Dr. Beaver, Dr. Beaver says jazz is not an historical novel. In some ways, I think of it as an historical novel, but I think of it in the same way as you think of a work. If you ask, ask, ask the author, what is this work supposed to do with the author? Someone says, well, it's allegory. The question is, what is it to tell you about your current condition, about how you read that condition in relationship to other conditions? But I'm, I'm most, the favorite part of allegory for me is to take something that is positive science fiction. So, that's what it's about. I'll leave it now. 
Jefferson saying, look at 1920s, look at the historical legacy of 1920, and ask yourself, what is it that you missed in terms of your interpretation of history? Yeah, I, I think one way to think about this, if, as we kind of link the 90s and the 1920s, if you think about the fact that, that hip hop, um, the largest consumers of hip hop are, are suburban white, white kids, right? What does it mean that they're basing uh, their cultural style on this representation of black urban life that mimics what was going on in the 1920s when whites were getting in cabs and riding up to, to Harlem. Um, on some level, you're, 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 you're saying, you know, this is, this is what life is, right? This is, but but the, the thing is that life is, is being performed and acted out by people that you consider other, right? And, and, and so part of what, I mean, if you've read Playing in the Dark, part of what Playing in the Dark is, is interested in is what does it mean that your sense of self, which you think is separate, distinct, and sort of individually constituted is in fact the product of a, a set of historical mechanisms that are grounded in figuring out what the other is and then defining yourself in opposition to that, right? And the 1920s and the 1990s with hip hop and, and jazz, there are moments when people overcome their revulsion at the other um, to to want to get close to the other as a way to 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 re-energize their own sort of vapid experience, which leads to um, which sets in motion, I think, a series of processes that have just been repeated over and over again. Right. So so so, Professor Cade is right that we can trace this back to the beginnings of the country, but it also so so if so. I, I would I would sort of dicker with Professor Kate and say that I still don't think jazz is a historical novel. I think it's a historiographical novel, and in, and in that sense, it's a rumination on how on how we construct history, right? Because if you think about the novel, right, it basically tells the same story over and over and over again, right? I mean, so so Joe Trace's story gets told to us at least by my count four times. Violet's story gets told to us by my count at least three times, right? And by her story, I'm, I'm talking about when Joe falls out of the tree and they meet, we, we get that story, we get a couple different versions of that story. We get that story and, and, and as kind of the way that Violet, who's really sort of pining for her, her mother that's committed suicide, and all she has is the golden gray story, Joe falling out of the tree is actually this moment where the real intrudes on her sort of beginning to sort of take this fiction as the real, right? Well, the, 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 the thing is when you, when you, I mean on some level, jazz works that way. It, it sort of does the same thing over and over and over again. But what makes it interesting is that you improvise on the theme, right? So you start to pull in all these other things and play it in another key, or you, you, there are all these things that you do musically that make it different, right? So, so if you think about it, one of the things that, that, that we get set up to do in popular culture in the age of mechanical reproduction is to expect the same thing over and over again, right? And, and 
how do you get out from under that, right? Now, my students tell me, A, you don't listen to hip-hop on the radio. B, you don't really buy hip-hop records you know, from, from iTunes. You buy mixtapes that somebody on the street created, right? So when you, when if, I mean, you think about how hip-hop, how we ended up having hip-hop, they intervened on the means of production and produ produced this other thing, right? But the, the thing is, that the mainstream is always trying to incorporate those things. So, so I talk about the anthropoemic. Anthropoemic in, in our culture, it consumes it and then makes it to be the culture, right? When in fact it started off as being this different thing, you consume it and, you, and, and, and the fact that it was different eventually vanishes. So, so um, one of the things that I'm thinking about in this project is the political. How do we create communities that are communities that don't rely on myth as a way to understand their place in history, right? And, and that's, a, that's a difficult one. Right. But Morrison's always trying to think through, how can we get there, right? So, so I don't think her fiction is purely diagnostic. I think that she is sort of striving for how to imagine what this might look like, but you gotta sort of read her over and over again to sort of get a, to get a handle on it. And I would say that I am probably about 40% of the way there.